So I've been thinking a lot this week about our celebration today of all saints. Thinking about the many things that we inherit, that we receive, that are passed down by those saints in our lives, whether our family itself or our wider family of faith that come to us. Sometimes uh, strange things get passed down to us, of course, in our families. I remember after my dad passed away, we were sorting through uh, his closets and uh, the man shed that he had back behind the house and all the quirky things that he had, several of which we let go, but uh, I was a particular fan of my dad's ties. My dad was a professional during the late 60s and early 70s, which is probably the last time he bought ties. And if you have a little sense of fashion, you can imagine what those ties looked like from the 60s and 70s. They were ugly. They were real, real ugly. But I loved them, and so I took about a half a dozen of them, and I still have them in my closet, even though uh, there is some wondering at home about why they stay in my closet. Though last night, Miriam and I attended a fundraiser here in town at the Museum of Art, and they had encouraged people to dress in sort of old-timey, like early 20th century clothes. And I said, aha, I have a tie for that. So sometimes it turns out well when we inherit or receive odd things from those who have gone before us. Of course, today we think a bit more about more important things, about the legacies that we receive, some of the core values and beliefs, the foundation upon which we stand, the shoulders upon which we stand, and those saints who have gone before. Well, Jesus is going to get at a bit of that this morning in his teaching as we turn back to Matthew's gospel. And today we continue Jesus back and forth, this dialogue disagreeable as it is with the religious leaders in the temple. And we pick up today in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. Listen to God's word for us this morning. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Jesus said to them, How is it then that David, by the Spirit, calls him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him, the Messiah, Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give Jesus an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord. For you alone are our rock and our redeemer. And let all God's people say, Amen. 
Which of these commandments, they asked Jesus, is the greatest? Well, honestly, it seems like a pretty straightforward question. And actually, it wasn't uncommon for religious leaders, for rabbis, for teachers in Jesus' day to engage in dialogue about their understandings, their prioritizations of the law, the Torah, uh, what we Christians call the beginning of the Old Testament, those books that provided the ways of being and living in the world and relating to God that directed the life of the Jewish people. We're told in tradition that in the Torah, there are actually 613 commandments or laws, the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots, right, that we receive. And that they would have divided uh, or distinguished those laws between the lesser laws and the greater laws. That is, they tried to prioritize or sift out which ones of those were less or more important to them to follow. We might think of them in today's language as misdemeanors and felonies. If you and I get into an argument and I get mad and push you down, I've committed a misdemeanor. That's a lesser law. If you and I get into an argument and I get mad and push you over a cliff, well, that's a felony. And now we're talking about something else entirely. So there are different ways that we measure or prioritize the laws, the lesser and greater laws. And... And I bet those Pharisees thought that they could trap Jesus. For asking him this question was not simply an invitation to debate. It was baiting him for a disagreement. They probably assumed that this rural rabbi, this itinerant preacher from Nazareth, of all places, he probably didn't even know all uh, 613 laws. And so this would be an easy debate for them to win, to snag him into the weeds of all these laws and discover that he didn't know nearly as much as he seemed to claim to know. They were looking to take him down a peg. And Jesus begins by quoting Deuteronomy 6, what in the Jewish tradition is called the Shema. And that word Shema is a verb in Hebrew, which means to hear. And it's called the Shema because it's the first word of this passage from Deuteronomy 6. And I want to actually read a little bit larger portion of it than Jesus quotes. Starting in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6, the scripture reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today. In your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are at way, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand, fix them as an emblem on your forehead, and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, the Shema is teaching the Jewish people to surround yourselves in all times and places with these words, this foundation upon which you are to build your life. Because after all, for this small, marginalized people in the middle of the Middle East in that time, they were surrounded by all kinds of other ways of orienting their lives, all kinds of other messages. And the Shema is teaching them to base their life on this core principle or values. The importance of this cannot be overstated for the Jewish people. It's been passed down for centuries through this great cloud of witnesses across time and space. 
to these religious leaders in this current time and space standing in front of Jesus. And so by quoting the Shema as the greatest commandment, Jesus is pointing out to them that the aim of the law is to orient our entire lives towards God, heart, mind, and soul. Which turns out not only to be an acceptable answer, but a faithful one to their tradition. Except that Jesus then goes on. He continues. And the second, he says, is like the first. And now he's quoting from a different part of the Torah, from Leviticus chapter 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, Jesus' audience then, and we now, should remember that this part of Leviticus, this part about loving one's neighbor, if we were to expand and read a larger portion from Leviticus, we would realize what love of neighbor really means fully. The understanding of loving one's neighbor is not just some vague concept of goodwill towards one another. Instead, it is a kind of societal vision or a social contract for how we're meant to live with each other. This section of Leviticus requires human relationships that are grounded in justice. Respect for our parents, for example. Uh, a provision of food for the poor and the alien living among you. Because, as God often reminds the Israelites, remember that you were once an alien in a foreign land in Egypt. And so care for those aliens that live in your midst as well. There's a prohibition against stealing, lying, falsely dealing with others. There's a prohibition against defrauding or reviling people who are physically disabled, the deaf and the blind are named specifically. Against withholding wages from day laborers. There's a commandment not to stand by while another person's life is at stake, not to make biased judgments or slander, to forego hatred and vengeance even when you really want to. Love of neighbor, in other words, is intrinsic to the obedience of the law, and for Israel's covenant with God, it calls them to prioritize love for those who are most vulnerable in their midst. And Jesus' audience would have been familiar with both the Shema and with this Levitical teaching about care and prioritization of the vulnerable. In fact, they would also know that Jesus himself has expanded the idea of love of neighbor in his own teaching. We go back to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus told them to love their enemies and to pray for their enemies. In other words, love for one's labor is both very specific about the ways in which we should treat each other, and it's universal in the fact that it applies to everyone. Jesus is declaring that to love God is to love in the way that God loves, which is indiscriminately. And to love God is to love what God loves, which is everything and everyone. You cannot exclude or oppress any of God's creatures, even your enemy. While on the other hand, the scribes and the Pharisees had been using the law to place severe limits on those who they were obliged to recognize as their neighbors, who they were obliged to love, in other words. And Jesus has joined these two texts together to smash all the limits and the boundaries that they may have created about neighborliness. There's two commandments, but there's one love. There's no love of God, after all, without a love of neighbor. We Find this again in the New Testament in 1 John 4.20. How can you love your uh, God whom you have not seen, but you do not love your brother or your sister who you have seen? 
It's impossible not to love your brother or sister, but to claim to love God. On the other hand, in Matthew 25, that great teaching about the least of these, if we love our neighbor, as you've done it unto the least of these, then of course we necessarily are demonstrating love of God. You have done it unto me. We can't separate these two things. It reminds me of the ingredients in something that we might make. If you bake bread, for example, and start with flour and yeast, they begin as two distinct things. But in the bread itself, you can't distinguish one from the other. They become one. Two commandments, love of God and love of neighbor, but they become one. They cannot be separated. And this is the part of the teaching which really shocks the religious leaders. Who is Jesus, after all, to claim that our love of neighbor, this expansive love of neighbor, should be held up like or right alongside our love of God? This is where Jesus adds this last little bit of the story that looks a little odd and out of place. Now Jesus asked the question, what about the Messiah, he says to them, whose son is he? And they faithfully answer as Jews, the son of David. That is, the Messiah will be a descendant in the lineage or the ancestry of David. And they're right, that's true, but it's not the whole truth. For Jesus says, as David had talked about the Messiah being his Lord, so I am not only the son of David, but I am the Messiah or the Lord of David. In other words, Jesus is reminding them and claiming his authority I am the one who knows the law. I am the one who knows how to apply the law. I am the one who knows what it really looks like in the heart and the character of God. It was important for him to claim that authority because, as religious professor Tim Beach Very says, the religious leaders are upset about this. Jesus is declaring that God's purposes are larger than any single people. The Messiah's mission transcends the salvation of any exclusive group. Those who claim to love God must love all of God's creatures, even at great cost to themselves and their own privilege. Ouch. Those who follow the Messiah must subordinate their own interests and identity and purposes to the Savior's more universal mission. To many of the Pharisees, this image of God is unsettling. It's a stumbling block. If the God of Israel loves all nations just as much as them, then everything about their identity might be threatened. If God esteems all people as groups of God's chosen and requires a corresponding love, does that mean the Pharisees are really called to love all people as much as themselves? Are they called to love the unclean, the rejected, the tax collectors and the sex workers, as Jesus said in a previous parable? Yes. Yes, they are. And before we get too comfortable pointing the finger at those religious leaders in Jesus' time, we might pause and remember that as people of faith today, we're just as prone to the same religious interpretation that uses faith in the service of our own power and prestige and privilege and in order to justify the exclusion of others in our lives. We too, it turns out, need a Messiah that will undoubtedly be as troubling to us as it was to them. Two commandments, but one love. This morning I want to give you a couple of lenses through which to look at this idea about love of God and love of neighbor being held together. First, the truth is that we are wired, we human beings, 
to look out for ourselves, to prioritize our own needs, our own security, and our own status. Whether we understand that as original sin or as part of our DNA, uh, in fact, the Reformed tradition, the Calvinist tradition, says an awful lot about the depravity of human beings, that we are just oriented mostly towards ourselves when left to our own desires. And here, Jesus is confronting that orientation with a threefold way of looking at the world. Every issue, every decision, every action. By asking, how are we loving God and loving neighbor and loving ourselves in this? And it occurs to me that that kind of orientation, that reflexive consideration of God and neighbor and self, is a learned response We're not naturally born with that. We learn that over time through the practices and the stories of our families and our family of faith. It's something that's passed down to us from generation to generation, just as the Shema was for the Jews. We've encountered a few examples of that here at First Presbyterian Church in the last year. Uh, Several months ago, our FPC Reads group read a book about the Colorado River, and as we all know, the challenges of there being enough water in the Colorado River for the tens of millions of people that use it. And fundamentally, the question comes when we talk about how we use that beautiful, natural, God-given resource. The question comes, how are we in our use of and distribution of that water, loving God and loving neighbor and loving ourselves? For if we look through that lens, through that framework, it changes everything about how we approach that issue. It doesn't necessarily sort out all the details and the legal requirements, but it is an orientation. It's a way of centering ourselves as we approach a difficult question in life. I also appreciate the fact that That love of neighbor includes or is born out of a love of self. For just as we might question our orientation to only look after ourselves, there is also a healthy self-love. There is a healthy way of recognizing that we need to care for ourselves in order to care for our neighbor too. One of the things that I see here in families all the time is the fact that there are folks who get so wound up in the ways in which they are absorbing what is happening out in the world, that it causes them too much anxiety in their own lives and sometimes breaks apart relationships in their own families. I've had people come to me and say, my parent or my grandparent or my sibling has lost all connection with the family because he or she has gotten so caught up in the news of the day, so caught up in their perspectives, their partisan perspectives sometimes, that they've broken off all relationships, that they've lost a love of neighbor, that is, because of how deeply they are embedded in the realities of the world. And to be clear, we should know what's happening in the world. We should care about what's happening in the world. But we live in a different world today than we used to live in. When I was growing up, like many of you, we would read the headlines in the morning newspaper And then we'd have 30 minutes of national news, national and world news, on one of three networks to watch in the evening. That was the extent of our exposure, our immersion in what was happening in the world. Now you can sit in front of a TV 24 hours a day and be bombarded with images. 
And not that we should ignore those images, but if we allow ourselves to be bombarded to an extent that our own sense of self is broken down in grief and despair, and our inability to connect with others who might hold different perspectives or come from a different life experience is suddenly shattered and disrupted, well, well, then we're not really leaning into or looking through that lens of that threefold way of loving God and loving neighbor and loving and caring for ourselves as well. Another way to think about this is that perhaps that question about which is the greatest commandment, though admittedly originally asked with a smirk by one who was challenging Jesus to a fight, on the other hand, may be a question that we should all be asking. What is the greatest commandment? Or another way of asking that, what is the core principle or the core values? What's at the foundation of my life? What in the end really matters? Because as we find ourselves encountering a world full of anxiety and distress and grief and war, addiction, disease, and disaster, upending everything and turning our world neatly packaged on its side, in those moments, the lawyer's question about the greatest commandment might, through our lens, be a question about what is the most important thing in life? Or when everything is falling apart, what will really, truly endure? Or what is the central or core foundation of my life? Maybe we've all asked a similar question to the lawyer. And Jesus' answer reveals that when all of the 613 laws, the shall and the shall nots are boiled down, it all comes down to a central grounding and rooting in love, love of God and love of neighbor as for self. Instead of choosing a single rule to follow, Jesus instead chooses a, a motivation, the primary value or context behind which all of the rules were originally created. God's law, finally and forever, is a law of love. It's both that simple and in reality, it's also that difficult. Let me give you a couple of examples. From Scripture, of course, we remember the story from John chapter 8, the woman who was caught in adultery and dragged before Jesus by the religious leaders. Remember her? Apparently, she committed adultery with a ghost because nobody else was dragged before Jesus. But that's a story for another time. She is dragged before Jesus, and they quote the law, remember? The law, which is that one who is caught in adultery should be stoned to death. And Jesus, notice, doesn't question the law. He doesn't say the law is wrong or the law has changed, but he looks at the law through the lens of love of God, love of neighbor as self. And he asks the question, will you without sin cast the first stone? And they begin to walk away. It is a way of interpreting the law through love. We experience that here in the local church all the time as well. A couple of years ago, I had a young couple with an infant come and ask to have their child baptized here at First Presbyterian Church. Now, the couple themselves weren't members of the church, and the law of the church in our church constitution is that a parent should be a member of the church in order to baptize a child. And so I could have said to them, well, according to the law, you can't have your, baptize, your child baptized until you become a member. But of course, they are a part of a generation that is hesitant to join or be a member of a church or really any organization. We know that to be true broadly across the country. 
that younger generations are hesitant to join. And so it seemed to me that looking at that law through the lens of love, it might be an invitation to belonging to welcome them and to welcome their child in baptism. And it turns out that eventually they did become members. But we began with love rather than the law. Our Wednesday night immigration series this fall has been exposing us to and immersing us in the stories of immigrants to the United States from a wide variety of places. And of course, there's a lot of debate in our country about the laws of immigration, as there should be. There should be laws, and we should have a full-throated debate about it. And yet, how do we respond to the immigrants, the neighbors who live in our community today? How can we express love to them even as the larger debate continues? Well, the truth is, in any of these moments, there aren't simple answers, but there is a simple and yet difficult orientation or foundation for our lives. It turns out that sometimes the gospel provides powerful answers to difficult questions, and sometimes the gospel provides us with, well, with just deeper questions in response to that orientation. Two commandments, but one love. Some of you know that for years I've been a big fan of the Irish rock band U2, fronted by the singer Bono. One of their hits several years ago was a song called One, or One Love. The lyrics include these, One love, one blood, one life, you've got to do what you should. One life with each other, sisters, brothers. One life, but we're not the same. We get to carry each other, carry each other. One love. In an interview years later about the lyrics to that song, Bono said, I wanted to make it clear that we don't have to carry each other. We get to carry each other. It is a choice to carry each other. It is a privilege to carry each other. Two commandments, one love. So this morning, perhaps the words that we might hear from Jesus are not so much a response to the baited question, what is the greatest commandment, but instead, what is the great foundation upon which we stand? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in the words of the Shema, might we be reminded too to keep these words commanded to us today in our heart, to recite them to our children and talk about them when we're at home or when we are away, when we lie down or when we rise up. Bind them as a sign to our hand, fix them as an emblem to our forehead, and write them on the doorposts of our house and in our gates. Two commandments, one love. Amen.